The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 104.5 FM, 103.5 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And there's lots going on in technology this week. It is unbelievable. The whole issue with government hacks has been in the news front and center. And the SolarWinds hack is serious. And uh, I'll talk about how that happened. And I don't think they've still discovered the extent of that hack. It is it has managed to get the Russians into our government systems and many of the systems of the Fortune 500 countries, com- companies. And of course, uh, uh, Zoom is still in the news. One of their executives was indicted for conspiracy colluding with the Chinese. Uh, that's going to be an ongoing story it, of all the companies that have links to China. And uh, it's a sad news today because Twitter is shutting down Periscope. I know. <laughs> we used to use Periscope when you and I were allowed to be in the same building in the same state. I know. So they have actually transferred a lot of the video streaming features to directly to Twitter itself rather than having a separate app. Ah. And the good news is uh, stored videos just transfer over to Twitter. So it may be possible to still have those same functions, but Periscope as an app is gone. Well, that saves me space on my phone then. I think that should be a very good thing. This week we're going to feature the man who actually is the father of wireless networks, Norman Abramson. He created AlohaNet out in Hawaii, which was the first wireless packet-switching network. It's a very interesting story. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. Where did he go? Box. Uh, He was out smoking a camel. There's a letter in your mailbox. There he is. Okay, there we go. That's a little better. We got an email (laughs) from John in Baltimore. Dear Tech Talk, I need help. (laughs) I love taking pictures with my Canon PowerShot camera. I store the pictures on two SD cards. I swap them in and out as I fill one. I accidentally formatted the wrong card and wiped out a bunch of pictures that I really wanted to keep. Is there any way to get my pictures back? John in Baltimore. Well, if all you did, John, was format the card without trying to use it again, you can most likely retrieve most and possibly all of your lost photos. You use a file recovery program. I've talked about this before. It's really fantastic. Recover. Recover. R-E-C-U-V-A. Recover will scan your memory card and compile an inventory of the files 
that have not been overwritten with new files since the card was formatted. Now, since you haven't written on the card since you formatted them, they'll probably all be there. You can download Recover from CNET. Just do a search, Recover, R-E-C-U-V-A, and you've got to be careful on your download sites, guys, because some unscrupulous operators will embed malware in executable files. CNET is a good site. So just do a search for Recuva, R-E-C-U-V-A, and pick the CNET download site and download it. It's really easy to use. And I hope, John, you get all your photos back, and I think you will. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc, Jim, and the ever-present Mr. Big Voice. Well, when he's not out smoking. I know, that is true. I will note that I never change the orders of the three characters in my emails and always give the lowest billing to Mr. Big Voice. <laughs> Apparently, that top billing was given to Mr. Big Voice in error. I wonder who could have done that. Oh, so we have a conspiracy theorist <laughs> out there, right. don't we? Now, huh. I stumbled on another way to waste time on the Internet that you guys might like to look at. <laughs> random Street enough. View. It's a random Street View tool. And it's randomstreetview.com. Uh, and uh, uh, let me talk a little bit about that. And then, then he says, I noticed there was a big down downtime on the Google services. He wants to know what's all that about. Your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, there are three things he brought up. First of all, I'll admit it, Bob. I changed the order of the, of the emails. I just wanted to stir things up a little bit. Look to at make you. Mr. Big Voice feel a little bit more special. But now you've taken the wind out of his sails. Well, and you see how you get paid back? You make him feel special, and he's outside smoking when he should be in here doing the show. You know, Jim, that is a very good point. No I holiday think, bonus uh, for him. You know, maybe there, maybe that's the consequence of my of my change in the email order. I think it's tough love is what you need to show. Now, I'm going to tell you this random streetview.com. I've got it on my website now, and it gives you Google Street View from all around the world. Like right now— I'm looking at Bangkok. I'm looking at a country road outside of Bangkok. Then I hit next, and it takes me to a road in rural France, and I'm looking at a French road. Now I hit next again. It takes me to Mexico City. Wow. And you've got street view in Mexico. It is fun to just cruise around the world looking at these street views. And what you realize is how similar we all are. I mean, all, things look same kind of trees, same kind of roads. It's really interesting. Now, well, where, where am I at now? Now, oh, now I'm in. Uh, I'm in Virginia. Actually, it flipped to Virginia. That's interesting. So, seeing as how we can't go there actually, we might go there virtually then. That's right. Now I'm in Belgium. I just flipped next to you. Now I'm looking at a street view in Belgium. Nice, Slow down, man. nice farm there. You're gonna hurt actually, somebody. This is this is a lot of fun. I have to say, it's sort of a corny site. But all of that data is available on Google Street View, and they've just simply have a random number, random location generator, and you just go all around the world. I sort of played with this this morning, and I really did enjoy it. Now, Bob, let's talk about this Google outage. That was actually a big outage that Google had. It was on, earlier this week. It was on uh, December 14th, actually. And uh, it, it took out Gmail. It took out Google Drive. When was this? Was that Monday? This was Monday uh, the 14th. Let me see. Is that the right date? Did I sleep through Monday? You. It was in the morning. It was only 45 minutes, Jim. So you might have. Uh, it was early morning. 
on the uh, on Monday. You know, it might have been at a time when I wasn't using it. It could be. So, it. I mean, all the Google services went down. And at the center of the outage was something to do with user ID services. These are the things that validate it when you log in. So any of the services that regard login were failing. And that user ID service that handles authenticating your account. Now, the problem originated in August when the company moved to a new system for allocating system resources. You know, it basically determines how much of Gmail resources are used, how much of other systems are used, and it knows total usage on the net, and then it automatically allocates resources. Well, it turned out that the systems that were left on the old server and had not been migrated yet were showing zero usage. So the automated system said, hey, we don't admit very many people online, and so they just cut back the resources, and the resources failed. Now, what these guys, what they did back in October, because they knew they had to finish the migration and finish, they gave themselves kind of a, a delay. They gave themselves a 60-day delay. No, October, November, December, yeah, about 60, 70 day delay. And they said, okay, we'll get it fixed by then. But the problem is they didn't get it fixed by then. And the delay ended on December 14th. And all of a sudden the services started miscomputing resource requirements. And it just was a major meltdown. Took them a while. took them 45 minutes to find the problem. And the company has said, they're not going to let this happen again. Sure. They also, there was something that they, they did admit. They said their communication strategy was not very good. Next time they're going to do faster communication to let people know what's going on. This is what happens. You get these huge integrated systems. One little thing goes wrong and the, just crashes. Mm. We got an email from Eric in Sterling. Dear Doc and Jim, I've got an HP laptop that originally had Windows XP. That's a, that's a fairly old unit, but had XP. Now, my son was here for the weekend, and uh, he said, Dad, this laptop is so slow. Why don't we just pep it up a little bit with Linux? So he installed Linux Mint on it. And actually, I've got to admit, Linux runs really uh, pretty fast on this unit here because Linux is not a resource hog like Windows is. Now, I mainly use the laptop for my cooking groups on Facebook and printing recipes of interest to me. Now, now, so I've got hooked to this laptop. I got a US, I've got three USB ports. And so I've got a, my printer, of course, cause I got a print. I've got a mouse and then I've got an external hard drive. Cause I, I like to store all my pictures. Now the problem is as soon as I plug in the external hard drive, everything freezes up. So I'm thinking, I'm using too many USB ports. Is that right? Can I only really use two? I, in three, it, you know, covers the limit. What do I need to do to fix this problem? Well, um, Eric, uh, the fact that, that you're using all your USB laptops is not causing the problem. USB can support up to 127 devices. Wow. Obviously, three isn't anywhere near that number. Now, what's actually happening here? is that that old laptop has USB 2.0 ports. Those are older ports, and they can't supply enough power to the external hard drives. Ah. USB 2.0 ports typically only generate about 500 milliamps of power, and the, and the new external hard drives require more current than 500 milliamps, so as soon as you plug it in, 
it uh, it exceeds the capacity of the USB port, and then your computer uh, hits a glitch. So you're going to have to get a powered USB hub. Now, by power, that means there's actually a power unit that you can plug into the wall. And so you take that USB plug, plug it into the wall, and all those USB ports are going to be powered by the external power going into the hub. And uh, you might as well just get a USB 3.0 hub. I went on to Amazon. They're all about 20 bucks, these powered hubs, so it's not a big deal. There are just dozens of them on Amazon. Uh, pick one that's got a lot of good ratings, and you'll be good to go. And I don't think you'll have any more problems again. We got an email from Alan in Pittsburgh. Dear Tech Talk, I've heard that social media companies collect lots of data and sell it. Now, I know how to get to my Facebook data, and I, and I delete that as much as I can. But I don't know how to, how to get it Google. I've got, all, I've got all these Google services, you know. I do Google Maps, Gmail. I'm on, I do Google searches. I don't know where I can actually find out what kind of data they have and, and, and how to manage it. Well, uh, the good news is, Alan, there is a way to find out exactly how much data Google has on you. They have a, uh, a website, takeout.google.com. Takeout, T-A-K-E-O-U-T, just like food takeout. Right. Takeout.google.com. So you go to takeout.google.com, and they'll ask you to log into your Google account if you already haven't logged in. And then they'll have a whole list of services where they collect your data. <laughs> and you uncheck the ones that you don't use. It just make the whole thing go faster. Leave the ones checked that you used. Then you select the options that you want, how you want the output file. And then you just hit create export. Now, there is so much data. It takes a while to create that export file. So you can leave the website. And later on, you'll get an email from Google telling you that your export file is ready to be viewed. So, you know, it might take a few minutes. And, th and that email will give you instructions on how to follow a link to get your export file, and then you can download it and see all the stuff that, that Google has on you. I, I couldn't find a way to actually remove all that data from Google, but maybe I'll talk about that next week. That's all you have, and at least you'll know what, they, what information they've got on you. We got an email from Mark in Richmond. Dear Tech Top, I hope you can figure out why I can't get Facebook or Pinterest while I am at work. Ah. Now, I use the same laptop at home. Everything works fine there. I go to work, boom, Facebook and Pinterest don't work on my brain. It said, it said, cannot find the website. Uh, the website may be down. Now, but I know that they're, they're not down because I sneak into the bathroom with my cell phone <laughs> and then I, and I log on to them using my cellular network and sure enough, Facebook and Pinterest are there. I need to find out how to fix my laptop. Well, uh, I think you pretty much know the answer to this too, Jim. That, that's Mark in Richmond. Well, the fact that they don't load when you're at work, yep. not Fuck. an issue with your laptop because it lo loads at home, but actually... I think your IT department is blocking them. Yep. They don't like people wasting their time on Facebook and Pinterest at work. Mm -hmm. Now, I suspect that they've also blocked Twitter and Instagram. Now, 
I do not suggest that you ask your IT department about this <laughs> because then they'll know that you've been using social media at work. It's like walking into the police station and saying, hey, I just killed somebody. Exactly. Right? So I think you're just going to have to grin and bear it. Now, I mean, there would be a way to get it on your laptop, uh, but I, I just don't think it's worth it. I mean, you could set up your um, set up your your cellular phone as a as a Wi-Fi hotspot, and then you could connect your laptop to your cellular phone hotspot, and then you could get to the internet through your cell phone, just like you did in the bathroom. But I'm <laughs> but I'm telling you, I think you're better off staying away from social media while you're at work. Because I don't think your employer wants you to be using it. You know it. what? Here's an idea. You're at work. How about working? Oh, what an idea. Uh-huh. That, makes, that, that does make perfect sense. <laughs> uh, you know, I, if, if I were in the studio today, I'd, I'd check whether – well, you probably can get Facebook in the studio because well, – you we know. need it for, for – for, I mean, you needed to for check the Facebook page. For, for, for research. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not just fooling around here. Serious. Exactly. Exactly. We got an email from Carl Tyler. Dear Dr. Schertz, I've been reading in the tech news about companies revoking trust in their certificate authorities. Now, I know there are plenty plenty of articles on Internet uh, authority, but uh, they're very technical and hard to understand. You got a way of of explaining things that makes it simple. What's going on here? Well, uh, Carl, this this gets to be how uh, this. Certificate is used so you can send, um, so you can send um, encrypted information over the internet, and people cannot uh, detect it. Now, in the beginning, you, you would have like what they called symmetric keys, where the the person sending the code would have one key, you know, where they would do some way where they would scramble the uh, scramble the message. The person at the other key would have the same key, and they would unscramble it. Now, the problem with uh, if both parties use the same key, that's called symmetric keys, there's got to be some way to transmit the key from one party to the other. And, of course, that, that message would be intercepted. So there has to be a way to use keys that don't require that you send the keys over the Internet. So they came up with public-private key encryption. Now, so what happens is everybody who is in uh, in this process, in that PKI, public key infrastructure, they have a public key and a private key. Only they know the private key. So if I want to send an encrypted message to John Doe over there, I go out and I get his public key. I use the public key to encrypt the message. Now, because of the magic of mathematics... <laughs> It is very difficult, nearly impossible, for anybody to decrypt that message, even if they have the public key. And that the only way to decrypt it is with the private key that John Doe has. So John Doe gets the encrypted message, he uses his private key, and he decrypts it. Then if he wants to send a message back to me, he grabs my public key, encrypts it with my public key, sends the encrypted message to me, and I decrypt it with my private key. Now, here's the rub. I want to talk to John Doe, and uh, how do I know that that's really John Doe's public key? Uh 
That's the key. You know, I don't want to use some public key that's not John Doe's public key because then somebody else could see my message. And so there is a method of validating the public keys, and that's called a certificate authority. So when I'm talking to somebody and I want to know that this public key is actually valid, I look for a validation from the certificate authority. And there's a system that is operating uh, on the internet that certifies public keys as being public keys for the person that they say they are. And that's what's going on there. And so if they discover that a certificate has been corrupted or it's not certified, then uh, then you get a warning that this is not a certified public key and then you, you really shouldn't use it. And so the CA root certificates, as they say, uh, allow you to verify these certificates. And so your computer keeps track of all this verification. They, when, it, when you're dealing with a public key, it checks it out. And if everything checks out okay, you're, you're not notified of anything. But if all of a sudden the certificate shows up to be suspect, they notify you of that. We got an email from Lauren in Reston. Dear Tech Talk, many of the wireless routers have something called beam forming. Can you tell me exactly what this is and do you think I need it? Well, Lauren, uh, it's interesting. When you get a normal, uh, a normal antenna, uh, it just transmits in all directions. And uh, suppose you've just got one device sitting there talking to that antenna. Well, most of the radiation that it transmits is lost because a lot of it's going in the wrong direction. So if the antenna has been forming, normally they'll have multiple antennas and they adjust the, uh, the phase between those antennas and they can make it so that more of the beam is focused on the particular device that is receiving it. So modern routers can actually support multiple beams. So they're able to concentrate their power where it's needed, and that gives the routers more range. So if you buy a router, especially the, the new routers of really good beamforming, always get beamforming. Listen, we love your email. We do. Email us techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Thank you for listening to us this year. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, southwest of D.C. or 107.7 FM HD 2, Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. On a bright Hawaiian Christmas day That's the island greeting that we send from the land where palm trees sway. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Norman Emanuel Abramson. Now, Norman Abramson is the father of wireless networking. He's best known for developing AlohaNet, a system for wireless computer communication that connected all the islands in Hawaii. Abramson was born April 1st, 1932, in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, he was uh, his father was uh, he was born uh, of, of uh, his pa- his parents had migrated from. Uh, from another country, uh, from uh, you know, from Europe. His father was a commercial photographer. His mother was a homemaker. Now he was schooled in the Boston public schools. He attended Boston Latin School and the English School of Boston. He went on to get his P, uh, a bachelor's degree in really a great field, physics, yes, from Harvard because University. Because that's your field. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then he got a master's in physics from UCLA. And then he got a Ph.D. in 1958 from Stanford in electrical engineering. Uh, his thesis at Stanford focused on the area of communication theory. Now, Abramson was a research assistant at Hughes Aircraft uh, until 55. Actually, when he was working on his master's degree. And uh, after he got his master's degree, he joined the faculty at, uh, at Stanford University. And then in 1966... He was a visiting professor at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, in 68, he got a position at the University of Hawaii, serving as professor of both electrical engineering and computer science. What actually happened? He, he went out to Hawaii for a conference, and he just loved it. And he says, I want to <laughs> work out here. I want to be here in Hawaii. So he just got to know a few of the people there. A couple years later, boom. He had an offer. Now, some of his early research uh, uh, there in, in Hawaii was on radar signal characteristics and sampling theory. Um, this is how you can you know, send a digital signal. You can convert it from analog to digital, sample it, and send it. He also worked on frequency modulation, which is a way to get better signal-to-noise um, when you're transmitting signals. And he worked on error correction codes, because one of the problems with uh, digital signals, occasionally you miss a beat and you uh, you miss a bit, and then you want to know is there an error. So what you do, you have an error correction code, and so with that particular packet of information, you detect there was an error, and you simply retransmit it. And uh, he also worked, as you would expect in Hawaii, on seismic analysis, signal processing for that. Now. While he was at Hawaii, his efforts led to the construction and operation of a AlohaNet, 
the first wireless packet switching network and to the development of random access Aloha channels. Now, this was a, a huge achievement in wireless technology and local area network. See, the problem is you've got, you know, you got all those islands out there in Hawaii. You've got a, a radio on each one of them. They want to send a signal. They just turn on and start sending it. So how do you keep these signals from clashing with each other? So he developed a technique where the, uh, each of the um, stations would listen, and if nobody else was transmitting, they would transmit. So they'd only transmit them with silence on the band. Now, if two people, per chance, two islands would, per chance, happen to transmit at the same time, they would both stop, and they would wait a random length of time to, to restart, so they wouldn't restart at the same time again. And, uh, and so this, so they could detect collisions, as they say, and they could, uh, and they could keep the airways free. So he developed this method and it was packet switching, packet switched radio. And he was able to actually have all the channels talk to each other without a problem. Now, the techniques that he developed were widely used, uh, in other areas across, you've heard of Ethernet, for instance, where you hook a bunch of computers to a wire. It turns out that Bob Metcalf was, uh, you know, had to spend the night one time laying out on a couch, and he was reading about a low net, and he discovered the uh, the packet switching and collision detection methods done by a low net, and so Bob Metcalf built that basic system into Ethernet, and so, boom. We have that uh, Ethernet then was developed. We all use Ethernet for like hooking our computers to the system. So many of the techniques that we take for granted now, like even cell, cell phones and cellular towers, they all use the same basic techniques that, uh, that Norm Abramson worked out back then. Now, he called it AlohaNet. Okay, let's go about why he named it this. Yes. You see, it sets up the communication channel. So it says it sets up a connection. It says hello. And then when the connection is over, it terminates the connection and it says goodbye. So it says hello to start the connection, goodbye to end the connection. And in Hawaii, aloha means both goodbye and hello. There you go. Depending on the context. So I thought, what better thing? Call it aloha net. Now, it was, uh, the, the technology was deployed successfully in 1971 mm. based on the dual meaning of the Hawaiian word aloha for hello and goodbye. Now, everything uses the technology that was, that was developed there. He published it in scientific journals, and uh, he was, uh, I mean, he continued to serve as professor in Hawaii until 1994 when he retired. Now... Now, the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, he, he basically released this technology to the, to the world. He didn't try to make money on it. Like a lot of the guys who were there at the beginning of the Internet, they just wanted to make it a better world. So they weren't out to make money. They were just out to make a better world. Now, uh, after he retired from the, uh, uh, from the University of Hawaii, he, uh, he basically founded a company called Aloha Networks. <laughs> <laughs> and then he also uh, founded another company, Skyware. Both of them dealt with wireless communications, and they were, as you'd guess it, located in San Francisco, which was, you know, where Silicon Valley is located. 
Now, he served as a consulting expert in communication systems, data networks for for the uh, International Telecommunications Union in uh, in Europe, that's the European standards, for the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization of Paris, and for the United Nations Development Program in Jakarta. So he was trying to help establish global standards for communication. He hold, He's an IEEE Life Fellow. He holds eight U.S. patents and international patents, published more than 50 technical papers. He... Uh, in 1968, he got the Golden Jubilee Award for the invention of the first random access communication protocol. Very important. He received the Alexander Graham Bell Award from IEEE. That's like really their Nobel Prize mm-hmm. in 2007. He died recently, December 1st of, of cancer in San Francisco. So he was one of these guys who actually saw a problem and sought to fix it. And uh, I just love going back and seeing these these guys operate. I went back and read some of his papers, looked at how he worked with his students. He developed his students. He was a great educator and a great technologist. So there you go. Everything you wanted to know about Norm Abramson, the father of wireless networking. I hope you are paying attention because you can use the information just gleaned from Dr. Schertz to win a prize. We'll play the pop quiz coming up here on Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, southwest of D.C. now on 1077 FM HD2 and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. I stopped off at the North Pole. To spend a holiday, I called on dear. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Russ, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. 
Oh yes, thank you're, you, thank you. You're I very just popular, love the man. Virtual audience, it's just so enthusiastic. You're very popular, you know. Yes, but then of course, this is not simply a radio show, Jim. You know this. This is a yes. classroom of the airways. Right. So we have to assess whether the class has been listening with the pop quiz, mm-hmm. and if they get. 100% on the pop quiz, they'll get two tickets to fine dining at one of the uh, Stratford uh, dining rooms when they open after the pandemic, and they'll also get an A-plus for today's show. Now, earlier in the show, I talked about Norm Abramson, the father of wireless networking. He, of course, created the Aloha Net wireless communication system, which, which connected all the islands in Hawaii. Where did the name Aloha Net come from? If you know the answer to today's question, come on, show us how smart you are. Pick up the phone, give us a call. Dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Knee deep in eggnog ice cream east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're waiting for Google to commence operations again in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. Sanitized hourly with Eggnog and Jim Beam. 877-9-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. You know about the pop quiz, Doc, you either get a 100 or a 0 because it's one question, right? It is one question. It's either an A or an F. Nothing right. in between. There's no gray matter. There's no gray no area. No gray here. matter. No. We you, don't, might, you might say you there's don't no have gray to matter on here the curve either. in this system. Yeah. Now let's talk about the trivia of the week. Yes. The first emoticon. You know, that's that little picture there that communicates emotion. When did the first emoticon originate? I don't now, know. Now, all you're back tell me. through history, uh, you know, using typography, they've tried to display some sort of face. At some point, at some time, either a smile or a frown. But the first person who developed a technique that actually stuck and was used on a continuing basis was Scott Fallman. Scott Fallman, he was a computer scientist at Carnegie Mellon. He sent a, uh, an email September 19th, 1982, and he says, I propose the following character sequence for a joke marker, you know, that something is supposed to make you smile, mm-hmm. and he had a colon and, an, and a close parenthesis, so it looks like a smiley face if you turn it on its side. And then he said, but if it's a serious item, I propose a different non-joke indicator, and in that case, he had a colon and an open parenthesis, which means if you turn it on its side, it looks like a frowning face. Ah. And that was the first emoticon. Now, we all we can go all the way back. There are other examples of them. Back in that was the first one that was commonly used, where it's a series of keystrokes. Now, back in 1881, Puck, a satirical magazine, jokingly suggested that uh, we could make typographical constructions with faces, but nobody took them seriously. Then in 1912, the renowned Journalist and pioneer and writer Ambrose Bierce proposed that writers could append funny sequences uh, they, they could have uh, that could look like a smile, but nobody took him seriously. It wasn't until Scott Fallman sent his message board message that the, that the general public picked it up because by 1982, people were using emails and they started using it. 
So there you go. The first modern-day emoticon. Would you, Doc? I'm yes. sorry, go ahead. Would you pick something else short to talk about here while we process the winner? Yes, I certainly can. Let's talk about the idea of the week. Uh-huh. Using gravity to store energy. Now, this is really clever. I, I just love this idea. A British startup company has developed a device that they call gravitricity. Huh. Gravitricity. That's, that's, that word combines gravity and electricity. They're basically, they manipulate massive weights in a tall shaft to store and deploy energy. So think about it. As you're generating energy, say, with a windmill or with a, uh, you know, a, 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 a waterfall or, or, any, or, a, or a solar panel, <clears throat> that energy that you're generating will, can be used to drive motors that will lift these heavy weight, weights up in the channel. And then it's stored then as potential energy. So they're proposing to have mile-high shafts, and the weights will be between 500 and 5,000 tons. And then when you need energy, you simply let the weights pull the motors down, and the motors become generators. And they said that they could generate between 1 and 20 megawatts continuously for up to eight hours. Now, the amazing thing is these things can be charged and discharged over and over again, and they, they never wear out. And they're between 80 and 90% efficient. So it's much more efficient than uh, lithium-ion batteries. And so what they're proposing to do, there, there are a lot of abandoned, abandoned vertical mine shafts out there. They're, they're proposing just to set these systems up there and use that to store energy. Their first gravitricity demo is going to be in Scotland, now, it's going to be a small, it's only going to be 17 yards high, and we'll only have 250 kilowatt capacity, but that's going to be proof of principle. They're going to build a full-scale one in 2021. Now, the co-founder of Gravitricity, or the founder is Peter Frankel, he invented the first tidal energy turbine. It's basically putting windmills underwater and having the tides turn the windmill. It's a clever idea. So there you go. Everything you want about gravitricity. All right. Okay. We've got somebody who'd like to play the game. Let's go to line one. This is Jason, who's calling us from Easton, Maryland, on the Eastern Shore. Good morning, Jason. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thanks. Good. Doc, go ahead and ask the question, please. Yes. Earlier in the show, I talked about the man who was father of wireless networking, Norm Abramson, and he, of course, created Aloha Net. Where did the word Aloha Net come from? When you initiate the connection, you start with a hello, and when you end the connection, you end it with goodbye, and aloha means both hello and goodbye in white. Very good. Excellent question. Perfect. All right. Thanks for playing, Jason. Hang on a second, and thank you for listening, and happy holidays to you. You listen to Tech Talk Radio. This is Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, also 1039 FM HD2. You can hear us on uh, 1077 FMHD2 on the uh, southwest side of Washington in our far southwestern suburbs in Loudoun County. Listen to us on 104.5 FM. So delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Yep, WD-40 is coming your way for the holidays, Doc. Oh, I'm going to need it for sure. Yeah. You know, this this week down in the bunker, I've been thinking about education because, of course, I've devoted myself my last 20 years to education. And so what, you know, really, what's the purpose of education? And so I, I was reading George Orwell, and he said, if people cannot write well, they cannot think well. Hmm. If they cannot think well, others will do their thinking for them. Aha. See, so if you want to be in a democratic society and if you want to have an input, you'd better be educated now. And things are changing at an exponential rate. I mean, uh, with with machine learning, a lot of the uh, hard skills are going to be gone. A lot of the accounting jobs will be gone. A lot of things that are just basically look up and document that are sort of manual in nature. Those jobs are going to disappear. We're going to have to reinvent ourselves now. What do, what do employers want? Because if, uh, if a hard skill is going to, and if we're changing things, things are changing at an exponential rate, what do employers really want from people? Well, they want critical thinking skills. They want you to be able to solve a problem that you've never seen before because you'll be able then to continue to learn and to grow in the job. Even as the job evolves, you'll stick with it. They also want skills more and more so, particularly with the pandemic and self-management, like active learning. They expect you to learn on your own. Uh, resilience, how to pick yourself up when you fail and just truck right on. How to manage stress and how to be flexible in particular, because you know not everything goes your way, so you have to be able to flex and adjust and, uh, and keep up the pace. They also think that... Uh, Skills that cross many disciplines are important, like uh, marketing, digital marketing, human-computer interaction. So all of these things are important. Now, how do we package that in education? Uh, what, do we, what do we try to teach in that? Well, the first thing we try to do 
with our students is teach a growth mindset, not to fear failure. So what, uh, and uh, take challenges and have the mindset that no matter whether you win or lose in the task, you will learn from it. And the learning, the knowledge that you acquire is the most important thing. And you develop a growth mindset by working on projects that are really difficult. You're not sure you can do them, but you get them done. And over time, you begin to build the self-confidence in yourself. So we try to build in our students a growth mindset, extremely important. Now, we try to teach them how to solve problems they've never seen before. I mean, this goes back to Socrates, uh, when he was teaching on the streets of Athens by asking the youth questions. And there are basically eight elements to critical thinking, like what's the purpose of the thinking? What's the question at hand? What data do I need? How do I analyze the data? What are my conclusions? Am I looking at the problem from all different directions? Is the data unbiased? Um, what are the implications of the conclusion? There, there were basically eight elements of critical thinking. Now, those of you that are in uh, the sciences, you recognize this as simply the scientific method. But critical thinking is the scientific method applied to everyday life. So if students have the ability to sort of think through a problem by going systematically through the eight elements of critical thinking, they can solve a problem they've never seen before. So we try to embed that in our programs. Then, of course, the ability to communicate is always there, both in writing and verbally. If you can't communicate, you can't build teams and you can't succeed. Now, something that is uh, that we've added more to our curriculum of recent times is mindfulness. Uh, probably comes from our Indian campus. Uh, and there's been a lot of study on mindfulness. If somebody is mindful, they can feel their own emotions welling up. They can control themselves. But there's something magic happens if a leader is mindful. He can feel what his team needs. And he's able to give his team what they need. And he, uh, a mindful leader uh, has then the humility to give the team credit when they succeed. So Tom Collins calls um, that type of leader a level five leader. And uh, businesses need level five leaders. But it always starts with mindfulness. Then the final thing we added, this probably was influenced by our Indian campus, is uh, what it takes to be happy. I, I don't think schools actually teach that, yet Yet they should. <sighs> can, you and, can you teach that, Doc? Really? Oh, you can. You can. Uh, and, I mean, I learned this in spades in India. If, if your goal is to have a big house and make a lot of money, you'll never be happy because somebody will always earn more than you and have a bigger house. So if your goal is actually material, you will never actually be happy. The only way to truly be happy is to give, to help others. So, so we try to have projects that give, that give students a chance to do that. It's, it's a pretty universal trait. I can go to India and I can find people that have almost nothing, um, and yet they're happy. Huh. So uh, we... To a certain degree, I think, especially in the United States, we end up having false goals. Um, I mean, I once had a friend. He ran a company, sold it for millions, hundreds of millions. You would think he would be ecstatic. Uh, and he was miserable because he didn't, he didn't have a purpose at that point, And he didn't have a way to achieve habit. I had another friend who sold their business, also hundreds of millions, but he his whole life, 
he had been working on charities and helping people. So he started mentoring kids, helping kids. He was happy as a clam because he was giving back. So if you have these five traits, a growth mindset, ability to solve problems you've never seen before, the ability to communicate, mindfulness leading to mindful leadership, and being able to identify goals that will lead to happiness, you will be successful no matter how fast the world changes, even if it is at an exponential rate. Interesting. So uh, what time do we have we here? Got, we got about another eight minutes, seven minutes or so. Okay, let's just, I think we should just truck on because I I've think got, we should too. I need to talk about solar winds. Yeah, yes. This was a huge hack. And this is, this is different than a normal, you hear, you hear somebody, they, they'll, they'll use phishing and they'll break into the servers of, of a particular company and they'll grab some data because those are basically one-offs. Sol, the solar wind hacks was unbelievably successful and damaging. Now, solar winds is a, uh, is a company that, uh, that makes software that monitors networks and reports on security problems. So they had 18,000 customers. Their software is supposed to be the cop that keeps the network secure. Now, because they're sitting on top of the network and they have to keep the network secure, their software has access to all levels. It has the highest authority within the network. In addition, because they don't want their network's monitoring activities to be interfered with by antivirus software, many of the companies did not exempted SolarWinds software from antivirus scans or malware scans. So that's the setting. Okay? So this is, SolarWinds says they have 300,000 customers worldwide hmm. That includes all branches of the U.S. military, the Pentagon, the State Department, NASA, National Security Agency, Department of Justice, and the White House. Ten leading telecom companies are customers of SolarWinds, as well as five of the top five accounting firms are customers of SolarWinds. So this is what happened. The Russians put in injected malware code into a SolarWinds update. They penetrated the SolarWinds network. They took an update that was about to be sent out to upgrade the software, and they injected malicious code. SolarWinds had no clue that this was done, and that update was delivered to 18,000 customers. Mm. Now, this was delivered in March of 2020. In March of 2020, it wasn't detected at all. And this code gave them unfettered access to these networks, which they were able to use for months on end. And they were able then to inject other code. Like, for instance, well, Microsoft was one of their customers. They injected code into some of Microsoft's updates. And they were actually making huge, they were penetrating networks globally. 
Now, it turned out that uh, finally one organization, FireEye, detected them. Now, FireEye was another security firm, and they actually didn't detect the penetration. Uh, they had no, no knowledge that there was a penetration. But, but one clever admin noticed that there was this unexpected logon to their server. Um, I mean, it, it didn't trigger anything unusual, but that was an unexpected log on to the server. And he says that we shouldn't have had a log on then. That does not make sense. So then he started investigating it and investigating it. And he discovered the full extent of the penetration. They discovered that the solar winds update, they, they sort of unraveled it, unraveled it, unraveled it all. Uh, then they notified others and they notified Microsoft. Now, the reason that this is so dangerous is that our security systems in the U.S. government, this went undetected for months. So they don't actually know how much damage was done. They don't know how much code has been injected into the system. Some security experts are saying they're just going to have to reinstall everything from scratch because they don't have enough people to double check everything. So the reason the government, I don't know if you noticed that the government's been pretty quiet about this. I hadn't heard about this until today. You noticed? You noticed? Yeah. Because they don't know how bad it is. Wow. They're trying to uncover it. This is the most pervasive hacking that we have ever experienced in the the history of this country. This is a big deal. And and so they are afraid that, uh, that all the secrets have, are out. They just don't know because it could be that uh, the, these, are, these are Russian hackers. It could be that they went in there. They had unfettered access for months. They could have then taken everything they wanted to. Then they could have gone in and deleted all the log files. And so there may be no evidence that they were even there. Now, or else they could have put additional malware in the system. And, and so it could propagate on and on. And so to actually clean the systems up, when a uh, when a when a bad actor has had access to them for months is extremely difficult, and the government really doesn't have enough people to do this thing. So they're really uh... now the company that should have the agency that should have been monitoring this for the con- for the uh, U.S. government was the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, which was at DHS. Do you remember the guy who said? that this was the most secure election we ever had, and then Trump fired him? Yeah. That was his department. Wow. He led that department. <laughs> and he should have been the one that caught this solar winds hack. All right, we got to go, Doc. Okay, very good. We'll see you next week. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.